and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good evening to you, Kobus. Hello. And a good evening to Aladia Caroza, who joins us again this week on the show. Aladia joins us from Bangkok, Thailand, where she is doing a five-month internship with the United Nations. But Aladia caught our attention uh, a few months ago because she completed her dissertation at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London on uh, Sino-African relations with an emphasis on uh, Chinese-Gabonese relationships, and where she did her dissertation on that subject. And so th- earlier this week, we saw uh, a post that kind of came up on our Facebook page on the Build Africa Forum. Uh, this is a conference that was held in Brazzaville uh, in the Republic of Congo, and we thought this would be a great opportunity to, to, to pick Galaria's brain on the, on the kind of the trends of, of uh, French-Africa relations and China-Africa relations. So a very good afternoon, or good evening to you, should I say, Elaria. Good evening to you. So this Build Africa Forum that was held the first week uh, in, uh, in February, on February 6th and 7th, the reason it caught my attention, Cobus, was when we talk about infrastructure in Africa, there is usually one word that comes to mind, and it's China. And when we think of building out roads and bridges and all of the key power stations that are going up, uh, I just don't see that many other countries playing as significant a role. Now, that might be because our focus is so intently targeted onto Chinese uh, involvement in Africa. Maybe we're missing what the French, the Italians, the, the, the Americans, and the Germans are doing. But tell me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think it's anywhere near the scale and volume that the Chinese are doing. That's my perception as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not an infrastructure expert, but kind of the, the, the from just reading a lot of China-Africa stuff, like almost... Uh, I, I can't. I can't give a percentage, but like uh, uh, you know, kind of, I would say the majority of, of major kind of infrastructure projects in Africa are currently being built by Chinese companies. That's, that's how I see it. Okay, so that's how I see it as well. And so when I went through the program on the Build Africa forum, and you can see this at buildafrica.com, uh, I was expecting to see a lot of representation or at least discussion of the Chinese. Uh, Okay, so maybe, you know, the Chinese don't necessarily participate often in these international forums. It can also be difficult to communicate across language and culture. The Chinese often like to kind of stay out of the limelight. So I could understand if it was difficult to invite people who represent the Chinese state-owned enterprises who are building out the roads, the bridges, and as I said, the rest of the infrastructure. But to completely avoid the topic, to me, just was was incredible. So let me just give you a highlight of of this two Day conference. Um, they basically went. They did a, a you know. You know, they did a, a roundtable debate optimizing bankability of African infrastructure projects. No Chinese. Infrastructure accelerator innovative financing. No Chinese. Lessons from the past. <laughs> successful African infrastructure projects. And one after another, there was no Chinese. And so I wonder if you're attending this conference, you're spending an enormous amount of money to fly to Brazzaville, because it's not easy to get to Brazzaville. Um, you know, no one's there. So who was there? There were 11 French attendees there and only two Chinese in, in terms of speakers. Um, Eladia, did this surprise you or am I just being too sensitive here? No, no, no. It did came as a big surprise to me as well. I was expecting more Chinese to take part in these. And, like, you know, when, when, when it comes to infrastructure in, in Africa, but not only in Africa, um, like the Chinese are always at the forefront in building them. They're, they're famous for uh, delivering infrastructure projects quickly. Um, so that, that, that came actually as a bit surprise to me as well. 
So uh, from if, if, if you were to attend this forum, you would have attended a session from 1650 to 1720, so only a half-hour session, by the way, Cobus. So that's, I don't know what you can get done in 30 minutes, but let's just kind of go for that. Lessons from the past successful African infrastructure projects. A look at some of the continent's most remarkable infrastructure projects exploring commonalities that lead to their successful completion. Sounds like a fascinating subject. Who was there? Uh, France, France, USA, France, AFDB, African Development Bank. <laughs> it just strikes me as just bizarre, you know? I yeah, mean, I, would, I would say one of the commonalities about recent successful African infrastructure projects was they were all built by Chinese. <laughs> well, at least on a big scale. I mean, so we're talking about, you and I have been talking a lot about the, uh, the, 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 the I think it's called the Pan-African Highway that, that's been going through Kenya. There's been some problems there. But the magnitude of the project that the Chinese are building there, the largest the largest rail project in post-independence history in Kenya is being done by the Chinese. The largest power stations in Africa are being done by the Chinese. I mean, one after another after another, it's the Chinese. You know, Aladia, it just seems irresponsible that at least, again, we're not having that. So I guess here's my question to you as a European, as the lone yes. European representative here. Why? Why do you? What would? What could possibly motivate them? Do you think to to kind of uh, to to skip this? Oh, uh, I guess maybe like um, some African governments are realizing that they yeah it's good to like you know look out for other um, foreign investors than the Europeans, but at the same time they um, don't want to get to um, don't want to put too much distance between them and and the Europeans because like. Um, it's, there's still the, uh, I guess, um, some some kind of legacy in in African countries that prompt them not to uh, like it's it's a contradiction here not to put too much distance between them and their previous colonizer while at the same time trying to involve uh, other foreign investors. But at the same time, the scale of Chinese projects and also the way they do things it's so. Uh, it sounds so new to them that maybe, I mean, they just want to see something which is uh, which they're more accustomed to. I don't know. Kobus, here's my operating theory. And it's based in absolutely no fact whatsoever. Uh, but uh, this was a conference organized in the Republic of the Congo by the president. Uh, it's suspicious to me that there are so many French actors who are participating in this conference. The Republic of Congo, of course, is a former African colony. Um, I suspect that this was part of the, the, the French government, I suspect, had some maybe indirect involvement in terms of promoting its own industries. And I think there was a conscious decision to not include the Chinese on a large scale on this in order to kind of pick up on what Eladia was saying, was to give you know, other actors a chance, or at least to give them a stage to be able to, to, to compete. My question is, is that who does this ultimately benefit? The Chinese are, are being successful in building infrastructure in Africa because they're coming in with subsidized prices that other international firms simply cannot compete with. They're coming in loaded with state cash. Um, at, so the loans are, are, you know, are just incredibly preferential. Long-term repayment schedules, very low interest that, again, the French, the Americans, the Japanese simply can't compete with. And, and so this is a way of showcasing what the rest can do, even though the Chinese are the primary actor. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would go even further and say that to, to a large extent, 
you know, it's not only that the fact that the Chinese come with a lot of money and that that money is relatively accessible to, to African governments and relatively, relatively cheap to repay. It's also that the Chinese came with new financing paradigms. You know, so the, that immediately came up in this, this one kind of panel that you, that you listed of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of innovative ways of financing this, this infrastructure. Where I was thinking, you know, the, the really innovative way of financing infrastructure in Africa has been designed by the Chinese, you know, kind of, which is not only in the fact that that the, the loans are bundled, um, you know, and that that you can kind of it's it's a kind of a one stop shop where you get both the loan and the the construction deal, but it's also you know kind of this this uh, loans for for um, commodities deals that the Chinese tend to, tend to set up, where it's where they make it possible for African countries to repay the loan with the oil or the, the iron ore or the coal that they're going to be mining once the, once the infrastructure is set up. You know, so, uh, you know, kind of this, this way of financing African infra- infrastructure, that, that Chinese, and, and it's, it's, I don't know whether it's even constitutionally and legally possible for European, you know, kind of countries to, to participate or to copy that kind of method. I, I'm not sure. Well, it's not even whether it's constitutional, just the infrastructure isn't there. So, for example, in the United States, you know, our, we don't have a national bank. We don't have a, you know, a policy apparatus that links up state-owned enterprises with the national strategic agenda. So we're, we're talking just a different political infrastructure as well beyond just the constitutional questions. But I think, you know, one of the disputes that I get into a lot with uh, people on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project is when people kind of push back on the Chinese infrastructure and they say, you know, the Chinese build crappy infrastructure, it's not worth it, the loans that that, that Ghana and that Kenya are taking on, you know, is just another form of neo-imperialism. And I'll come back with them and I'll say, listen, it is, it is a fact that, that Africa, across the continent, needs about $100 billion a year of infrastructure investment over the next 10 years simply to bring it up to par. So that brings it up to zero. We're not even talking about a modern infrastructure. Just getting it up to, to zero. And the, the African leaders across the continent have made a decision that says – these low interest loans, this new financing mechanism, COBUS, that you talked about, these resources for infrastructure deals are by far the best way that I can do that. I can close that $100 billion a year gap. And so it's a rational decision on the part of these African leaders to do this. It's, now, this brings us up, you know, Ladia, right into your wheelhouse, which it also raises the question of neocolonialism. So what people will say is they will attack the Chinese and attack these corrupt African leaders, who they will say, and they will say that China is using infrastructure as a way to, to impose leverage on African states. Take Ghana, for example. Ghana now has billions of dollars in loans that are due to the Chinese. Now, these are low-interest loans, but they are still billions of dollars of loans. What people will then argue is to say the sheer size of China compared to the tiny little size of Ghana makes it so that basically Ghana is going to be China's bitch for a very, very long time and that they can't do anything. And that's a form of neocolonialism. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, I was just just wondering while we're talking that, that 
um, do the, the Europeans um, and European countries actually um, have the, the, um, the necessary fundings and money to build this infrastructure? That, that, that is something that came to my mind. Because like, um, most of these infrastructure projects actually involve a lot of money. No, no, no. no. Um, let, me, let me just stop you right there. The, the Europeans absolutely do. The EU is one of the largest funders in Africa. The money is there. One of the things that makes mm-hmm. it difficult for the Europeans and the Americans is they're also burdened by enormous regulation on their own side. So you have to do environmental impact reports. You have to do, you know, uh, sustainability impact reports. You have to make sure that domestic Mm -hmm. uh, funders are used, domestic sourcing is used. You you know, all of these different things that are bureaucratic systems now uh, make it very difficult and more expensive. And so what ends up happening is that it is far more expensive to use a European, a Japanese, or an American contractor because of the bureaucracy, the documentation that's needed, all of that, than it is to use the Chinese. Let me give you one very quick example. Here in Vietnam, the, uh, the Japanese and the EU were, are, were going to be building part of the subway here. And I met with a contractor uh, who was involved on one of the projects here. And he just, uh, you know, he just shake, shook his head when, you know, he said when we talked about the Japanese involvement in building the subway here. Because he says the Japanese then force only Japanese contractors, only Japanese materials, and only Japanese engineers. So the cost compared to using Vietnamese engineers' materials and resources, it tripled or quadrupled. And that's the problem in dealing with the, the Europeans in the first world. The Chinese, by contrast, will bring in their cheap labor, which is controversial as it mm-hmm. is, but it's cheap. They'll bring in their own equipment, which is cheaper than bringing in, and they don't have to build to do all the environmental impact reports, for better or for worse. I don't say it's better or worse. I just say it's cheaper and faster and more mm-hmm. efficient. So that's a little tangent uh, on what you were saying. Yeah, uh, but you know what? It's actually interesting that you brought in the environmental issues because actually I think that here the Chinese have a huge potential to prove successful even in Africa because, you know, just two examples. Like they just launched last year their um, EcoCities project, the first of which will be Tianjin EcoCity, and then they just launched um, last summer their first pilot carbon emission um, trading scheme. So there's, I mean, maybe China's not the best example when it comes to, uh, like, you know, environmental, like, climate change issues. But then they are doing a lot in their own country to face climate change. They're committed to work on this. So I guess um, they should be given the chance to, to, like, you know, bring their own experience from their own country into Africa when it comes to the um, infrastructure. As well. Okay, so Cobus, uh, you know, there it is from Eladia, you know, point, you know, in favor of the Chinese in terms of environment. I think that will come as a surprise to many people who look at China and say, well, this is just the worst environmental cesspool that the world's ever seen now. I mean, what we're seeing in Beijing, I mean, you're, you're seeing, tw- you know, 20 of the world's most polluted rivers are in China. The air quality now in Beijing is second only to that of India, which is just, you know, you can't see sometimes, you know, 100 meters down in front of you. Um, um, and so to think that the Chinese may be environmental pioneers is counterintuitive, but one could also say that the carbon footprint of per capita of the average Chinese is still a fraction of that of what it is of the average Westerner. And secondly, the Chinese more than anybody now have a motivation to fix this problem. So the development of green technologies uh, might be something that uh, is interesting. And the point that I want to come to you, Cobus, is that one of the other trends that we're seeing, at least in the news coverage, is the Chinese bringing solar and wind power to Africa on a pretty large scale. So it might be that the infrastructure projects 
projects of the next generation may be very different than what we've seen of, you know, the, the late 20th century and the early 21st century. Yeah, I, you know, kind of, I think, you know, China is building a lot of coal-powered plants, apparently one per day from what I've heard, but, you know, that, that always seemed like a dubious statistic. But, um, you know, but they're also building more more green, you know, kind of energy installations than anywhere else in the world. So they are leading in, in terms of making green energy cheaper and in mass-producing the equipment. Um, so you're completely right. They, they are building a lot, of, a lot of kind of solar and wind projects in Africa. Um, you know, kind of, if you you keep if you read a lot of China Africa coverage, those pop up every few weeks. Um, so yeah, you're not going to. I think I think they have a lot to offer. But, what, um, but what's your assessment though of what the Chinese are doing in Africa when it comes to infrastructure and their track record in the environment? People like Romain Ditkin, who we talked to about Sino-Chadian relations, will tell you that China's CSR policies oftentimes are misunderstood, and they're actually doing more than what they're given credit for. In part because they suck so bad at PR and communications. And so scholars now who go beyond the PR communications are finding that there is, uh, there, there's some, some impressive trends here. Flip side of that is that we hear story after story after story of environmental abuse, environmental degradation, whether it's illegal gold mining in Ghana, clear-cutting of forests in the Congo, uh, you know, let's not even talk about ivory and the, and the wildlife savagery that's going on. So on balance, where do you think the Chinese come down in Africa when it comes to their environmental record and infrastructure. From how I, I understand it, um, you know, the, the Chinese tend to respond to whatever local government they find. Um, so if the local government enforces their own environmental laws, if they have environmental laws in the first place, and they have the enforcement agencies, and they enforce it, and they insist on, on you know, kind of on, on the enforcement of environmental protection as part of the deal, then that is the, the, the rules according to which the Chinese companies play, as far as I understand. I mean, one needs to make the decision distinction between large-scale Chinese companies and small operators, because obviously in the case of the, the Ghana gold mine, these were individuals. Um, frequently, they're illegally, and you know, kind of frequently, they're through community networks. So, you know, they don't represent some big, uh, a big Chinese company. I think in the case where, where a, a government makes it clear that these environmental regulations count, um, you know, China, the Chinese company would generally follow that um, that lead. I think, you know, the, the, the issue is that within China, frequently there isn't, a, a, you know, that much of kind of environmental, you know, enforcement really in place, and that there's, it's also a corrupt country in certain ways. Um, so there is, a, there is a culture of buying your way out of these problems. The problem is there's a culture of doing that in Africa as well. You know, kind of so, um, so it's, it's a bit of a perfect storm of corruption and environment there um, in certain cases. So last question to you, Eladia. When you look at the, at the infrastructure projects that are going on, particularly in your field of research in, Ga- in Gabon, but elsewhere, you know, when you see what the Chinese are doing versus what some of the others are doing, um, do you think when you look at the Build Africa Forum speaker panels and the lists of the, of the, of the attendees, was it, what was your thought on that in terms of should the Chinese be considered a, a major player or was it right necessarily for these African governments like the Republic of Congo to maybe open the door for others to come in so that there isn't this dependency? What's your final thoughts on this? 
No, well, I, I guess like um, both of the things actually, like they should that that the African governments should um, encourage other countries um, than China to invest in Africa. But then Chinese, the Chinese should definitely be considered as major players there. And like, there's just a knowledge gap that needs to be filled, and that's uh, when it comes to R and D and capacity building, and that's where the Chinese can actually improve their performances, uh, both in the field of investments and and and, and infrastructure building. But they definitely should be considered uh, major players together and along with other major players so that they that, that, that this way you don't really create a dependence you know yeah, and what I was surprised as well was that there was no panel on labor, because one of the most sensitive issues in any construction project, whether it's done by the Portuguese, the Americans, the French, or the Chinese, is who actually builds it. And as we know, we talk about this endlessly, Cobus, the fact that you know the Chinese import their labor oftentimes, not all of their labor, uh, but they do bring in some of their labor to build some of these infrastructure projects. That was not addressed. I think that's something very interesting. So if anybody's organizing a conference out there, I really think this would be a great topic of discussion to have. And, uh, and also to, to go back to Kobus's point that the Chinese react, and not only the Chinese, I would say all foreign actors react to the local governments. Um, and, and one very important point here is that oftentimes the quantity of labor brought in on an infrastructure project is often dictated by the schedule and the budget, which is set by the host government, not necessarily by the Chinese government. And so if there's a short timeline, then it is just much more efficient for the Chinese to in order to meet that timeline to bring in their own labor rather than to hire locally. My ultimate point is that it's a very complicated topic. Uh, Eladia, thank you so much for joining us on the show today to talk about uh, infrastructure. And uh, if people want to follow what you're doing, uh, you said you write in, in Italian. Do you also, are you on Twitter by any chance? I am both on Facebook and Twitter, so just type my name and you will find it. And I tweet in English. So you tweet in English. What's your Twitter name in English? Yeah. Oh, well, mostly about, like, um, well, I'm, I'm tweeting more about the, the work that I'm doing now here at the UN, so it's mostly uh, related to green economy, green growth, capacity building, and, and sustainable development, but Ooh. also on China and Africa, of course. All of those wonderful NGO buzzwords. And where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, just that my name is, like, um, twitter.com slash Ilaria Carrozza. Excellent. And, Kobus, where can people find you if they want to follow what you're doing? Um, I'm on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find uh, both Kobus and I. We manage the, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Over 150,000 followers with a great daily discussion. We're updating the page seven days a week, uh, sometimes as much as 18 hours a day from both Asia and Africa with the top Chinese in Africa uh, stories, but also Africa in China stories as well. So it goes both ways. Uh, and then if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it is just search for us on iTunes. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.